When you're doing something incredibly difficult, you need to get professional help. Nobody ever decides to go climb Mount Everest and doesn't get a trainer or doesn't train for years before trying to attempt it. But people yeah, decide one right. fine day they're going to become a startup founder, raise millions of dollars from investors, and go through zero professional training on how to deal with that level of pressure and stress. If you go investigate in Southeast Asia, I would say less than 10% of founders have professional help. Finding cool. the right professionals to help you is right. also huge because it's impossible to go through that journey alone. And right. we often talk about how a founder's journey is a lonely journey. And therefore, you need the right team of support who are at service to you. It's not your investors. Right. It's not your team members. It's not your friends. It's right. professionals who right. know how to train you for the challenge you're up against. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Ao, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Meet Rinkas, your go-to digital mortgage platform breaking down financial barriers, home seekers across Indonesia and Southeast Asia. They operate in more than 15 cities in partnership with all major Indonesian banks and premier property developers. Rinkas is on a mission to democratize home ownership and create over 100 million new homeowners. Don't just dream about owning a home, make it a reality. Explore more at www.rinkas.co.id. Hey, Projal. Excited to have you on the show again. We had a wonderful time recording the first time around, and we've gotten to hang out quite a few times since then, including watching Oppenheimer and Barbie uh, together. Uh, but you are also an expert on people leadership, and that's something mm. been a topic that people have been asking over and over again because mm. of both the successes, but also I think the failures in the region. So I thought this is an incredible opportunity to do a deep dive on this. So for those who don't know you yet, could you introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's great to be back on the show. So my name is Projal Katak since since 2020, I've been running a SaaS company called OnLoop, and we really focus on how do we drive high performance for hybrid teams. And, and prior to starting OnLoop, I'd spent three and a half years at Uber in a variety of leadership roles and also where a lot of inspiration came from, from what I thought worked or didn't work. With, with sort of leadership practices and management practices. And, and prior to that, I spent some time as a management consultant and in finance. So sort if, of, you know, I've lived across APAC and the US, I feel like I've not spent enough time in the middle of the world, but I feel like I know both sides of EMEA quite well. And so I feel privileged to be quite global in, in how I think about things. So I guess the fundamental question is, what does a good founder slash people leader look like from your definition? Mm. So, you know, I was, I was very lucky to spend two years at Stanford Business School. And if you think about what Stanford Business School tries to teach you as a leader, that the very first step of it is self-awareness. So before right. you even try to understand others, it becomes deeply important to understand yourself. And often I don't think leaders spend that time to really understand who they are, what drives them, what are their superpowers, what are their blind spots. And I think that's the first point. And then that transitions into how you then show up 
in an organization and how you're able to motivate and inspire and bring the best out of your people. And that can vary based on the state of the business, on the size of the business, on the scale of the business. And so there are different varieties of leadership. We'll talk about peacetime leaders and wartime leaders, and, right. and that's an important distinction. But I think it all starts with an investigation of yourself and really understand what's happening within you. And unfortunately, in my experience, not a lot of leaders spend that time to do that. Yeah, it feels like you measure them by results, right? And I think every leader also measures themselves by results. So I think it feels like there's a bit of a gap, right? Because you're talking about self-awareness, but leadership is like we say, this person is a great leader because he got a company from zero to X million dollars of revenue. So what do you think about that? Dichotomy yeah. yeah, it's not a straight path though, right? And actually Michael yeah. Bloomberg, I think posted this on LinkedIn a day or two earlier that Bloomberg started because at 39, he was fired from his job. Right. Uh, and it was a massive shock to the system and not something that he had ever expected. And for those two months of notice that he had, he worked like an absolute dog to try and prove people otherwise, but it didn't work. Right. And that's how Bloomberg started. And so in every leader's story, if someone is a leader for 10, 20, 30 years, it's never really a straight line. And so as right. a leader, you can't really focus a lot on right. the results to drive right. your conduct or your decisions. And that's why right. often we see leaders make mistakes when times are tough and they haven't seen enough. And yeah. I've now had this privilege to be running this company for three years and we've seen quite a bit. And I see the way I react now be very, very different versus when things would go wrong in the first year or two. And I didn't really know how to how to deal with it. And so I, I, I don't think leadership should be assessed by results. I think the world often does that. And I think people right. glorify success and put people up on a pedestal. But then they are also often happy to bring them down when they're on that pedestal, as we saw with Oppenheimer and, and sort of that experience. And so I think leadership is very much about a mindset and, right. and the good leaders stay quite unaffected by the outputs because they know that right. they can't control the outputs. What you can control right. is the inputs and you have to show up the right way and control the inputs and leave the rest of the world to work itself out. Yeah. I mean, that's a great example of Oppenheimer, right? So the movie was there. You and I both watched it. Now, that was quite interesting, right? Because, you know, obviously we're talking about building an atomic bomb and so, so forth. Yep. But I think for me, when I was like watching it, I was thinking to myself, yeah, this guy's by definition, he kind of knocked it out of the park from a results perspective. You take something that's not supposed to be doable to doable within a time frame that people thought was kind of a Herculean effort. And it worked out from that perspective, mm -hmm. a mixture of luck, the right people. Obviously, having billions of dollars of Americans' money also really helped in that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, kudos to him for being that project manager and also being that people recruiter. But I think to myself, like, man, that self-aware leader doesn't really show up well on TV, right? So well, I was just but, kind you of know, curious. Yeah. I think leaders also have conviction. Right. And, and that conviction may not always be placed in the right direction or that mm. conviction may not lead to good outcomes in the world. Right. But there's right. usually a conviction. And in right. often ways, it's a contrarian conviction of right. a belief of where to take an organization right. or a government or a project. And I think right. what was clear from the movie is that Oppenheimer trusted himself to have the conviction around his beliefs. Right. And I think that if you talk to a lot of leaders who've done groundbreaking things, you know, Travis Kalanick included at Uber, there was a lot of conviction. And, and right. often the world might disagree with it and the world right. might revolt against it. But that doesn't necessarily make you a bad leader. Right. 
I think it's interesting, right? Because a good person, if you define it by virtue, is not the same as a strong or effective leader, right? So there's two different prisms. And there are many people that you may disagree with on a principles basis, but actually it turns out to be still effective leaders and still have some of that lessons, right? Person for yourself to take away. Whether you agree with that person's mandate or mission or values even, right? We should be studying the leaders who are extremely effective at bad causes so that we can right. apply those principles to good causes. Right. And the cause, to your point, and the quality of the leadership are completely independent of each other. And unfortunately, we live in a world today where there's a lot of global governmental leaders who are very good leaders, often not for the right causes. And therefore, I think we have a responsibility to be demonstrating leadership for good. And the only way we can sort of compete with leadership for bad is by being equally good as leaders, but for the good. You know, this always reminds me of Harry Potter. There has this class at Hogwarts called Defense Against the Dark Arts. Mm -hmm. And then there's always this recurring debate, which is like, we have a class of Defense Against the Dark Arts, but we keep talking about the dark arts in order to understand how to defend against it. So maybe you should just scrap the whole program altogether. And uh, I always thought it was a mildly hilarious, I don't know, it was a recursive argument at some level, but it's a practical class, right? Yeah, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. And so yeah. if you don't understand them, you can't beat them. Yeah, I, I think there's an interesting dynamic because that cognitive dissonance, I, I, I mean, if I don't like you, I don't want to learn from you. I think that's mm. a simple one. So it's easy to learn stuff from people you like. But like you said, there's many people that you don't like or you respect them, obviously, but you don't like mm. them, but you still can mm. learn from them. Do you have any advice for people to be thoughtful or how to kind of like get past that hurdle to be like, okay, this is something I want to learn? It's a really good question. And actually, I've seen myself go through this evolution. I right. am much more comfortable today learning things from people I don't like because right. I am more secure about myself. And, right. and, of, and often when you have that visceral reaction to something where you want to push it away or shove it away, there's something within you that is not certain enough that is right. pushing it away. But today, and as a founder, I come across BC associates often who are not respectful. <laughs> and, and just because you're a founder, they, yeah. they think they can talk a certain way. And before yeah. I used to get very affected by it because right. I used to feel disrespected. But over time, I figured that was my own insecurity. And if you're more secure about yourself, you can smile at it, take the yeah. pieces you want, not yeah. take the pieces you don't want, and yeah. then move on. Right. And so, you know, I think often how the external world affects us, although the trigger might be external, what is actually right. happening is internal. And you know, Nir was talking about this in your episode with him around when you talk about distractions, only 10% of distractions are because of external triggers. 90% of distractions are about internal triggers. And, yeah. and which is why I think study of the mind, study of psychology, study of neuroscience is, is underappreciated in the world that we live in. I think we've lived in a world right. where we've prioritized cognitive abilities and people doing right. math and doing physics and doing computer science. But as some of these cognitive tasks get overtaken by machines and, and it will happen right. more and more in the next 20, 30 years, I think as human beings, we really need to study ourselves yeah. and then really understand sort of how you work out for your mind to put it in a yeah. place that it can deal with things in a healthy manner, right? People right. go and learn karate and kung yeah. fu and martial arts. We don't learn martial arts for the mind, but the, but the right. mind also requires the right martial arts to defend itself against threat. And when you yeah. feel safe, you're then right. able to absorb. And actually, in the yeah. world today, you know, we have we have two powers, U.S. and China, and and they yeah. tend to dismiss themselves holistically. I was in China about a month ago, and frankly, I was mind blown. 
And I was right. mind blown about how well that country runs. And unfortunately, everything you read in the Western press is very negative. And I think China's another example where we may not agree with, with sort of yeah. the way the country runs, but what that country has been able to achieve is absolutely spectacular. And I think everybody should be studying it to understand more about it. Yeah, I think it's spot on. Which is like we said, it's like martial arts, right? You can be in a highly stressful fight, but if you have done through that practice, you can carry over that state of mind from the practice to the combat. How should founders, for example, practice, get themselves mm -hmm. ready? I think you mentioned self-awareness is one thing. And I think you mentioned it was like resetting your mindset about the interaction. But how else would you recommend people to be thoughtful about this process? When you're doing something incredibly difficult, you need to get professional help, frankly. Right. And when I think nobody ever decides to go climb Mount Everest and doesn't get a trainer or doesn't train for years before trying to attempt it. But people yeah, decide one right. fine day they're going to become a startup founder, raise millions of dollars from investors, and go through zero professional training on how to deal with that level of pressure and stress. And I'm right. very proud to say that today I have a coach, I have a therapist, right. and I have a psychiatrist. Right. I have all yeah. three, and right. they all play very different roles in right. evolving my mind to yeah. deal with the ups and downs of building a startup. And right. if you go investigate in Southeast Asia, I would say less than 10% of founders have professional help. And I'm massively grateful for the work that my team has done to get me to where I'm today. Because one year ago, I wasn't in a good place and I sought professional help. That's been a massive game changer. I don't think I would have been here today yeah. if I would have not seek that help. And so finding cool. the right professionals to help you is right. also huge because it's impossible to go through that journey alone. And right. we often talk about how a founder's journey is a lonely journey. And therefore, you need the right team of support who are at service to you. It's not your investors. Right. It's not your team members. It's not your friends. It's right. professionals who right. know how to train you for right. the challenge you're up against. Right. I think for founders, and I was a founder too, right? And I was in a very lonely spot in you know, Boston when I was building my last company. And I think for myself, I engaged an executive coach, you know, a startup mm. coach, and that was very helpful. But I think what I remember especially was before I kind of pulled the trigger, mm. I kept thinking to myself like, wow, this is really expensive. You're eating like ramen and you're working off the incubator lab. And then obviously the company starts to take off a little bit. So now you have some money to potentially invest in this. But then it feels expensive. It looks expensive. Your friends don't really talk about it. So I think that was a big hurdle I went through. Did you experience something like that? Or have you heard of that concern from other founders? I mean, to be honest, it took me two years before yeah. I decided to pull the trigger. And a big part was that belief that is this a worthwhile investment to invest in myself? Right. Right. But if you get a coach doing two sessions a month for 90 minutes a month, it's going to cost you, if you get a really, really expensive coach, it's going to cost you between two and $4,000. And you would hire an SDR in the Philippines in a heartbeat for two to $4,000. And <laughs> that's and, a lot of way to put it, yeah. But if you think about the enhanced productivity you can have in terms of your productive capacity, in your yeah. ability to connect dots, in your right. ability to stay calm in adversary, in your right. ability to inspire effectively. The ROI right. on that is huge. Exactly. I think what people struggle with people's mm. stuff, and I know we'll get into it, is that it's hard to measure. Mm -hmm. And when something is hard to measure, people invest not the right amounts because yeah. you can't see the ROI. So people will invest right. a lot more in a CRM system because that translates into dollars and cents in revenue. And so right. you can see and feel that much more clearly. 
but right. the impact that an executive coach might have on you or a system like ours might have on you is harder to quantify. And there's actually lots of learning from the fitness industry and we right. can talk about that too. But I think it's important to talk to other founders and, and understand right. what drives it. And one of the worst things people do is when they're in crisis, they get a coach. And that's the worst time to get a coach. Because yeah. <laughs> by then, sometimes it's too late, right? Like yeah, 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 you, yeah, yeah. you go for your annual health checkup. That's much better than being at stage four cancer, right? All and right. so I think it's very much an education process. I, I know that there are investors paying at Monksale who really mm-hmm. understands people leadership right. well. And I know he counsels founders the right way. And so right. for us in Singapore and Southeast Asia, it's really about the ecosystem sort of maturing. I would say that in Silicon Valley, you would see uh, a larger percentage of founders getting coaches right. and it's just a more mature ecosystem. So I think we're moving in the right direction. I think the other thing to be said is that there are a lot of bad coaches and that is also a thing. And yeah. part of the reason why I started coaching a few CEOs is because I felt like you can't coach a CEO if you've never been a CEO. <laughs> and there's not a lot of VC-backed CEOs coaching CEOs in Southeast Asia. Versus if you look at the coaches in the Valley, they're often retired. In fact, Bill Campbell, who used to coach some of the best leaders in Silicon Valley, used to do it for free once he retired. Yeah. And so it wasn't really yeah. a profession. We don't have yeah. that luxury in Southeast Asia yet, but hopefully in five or 10 years, we'll, we'll build out an ecosystem that's very good. There's a lot of different ways we can take this conversation. For me, first of all, I 100% agree with you about ROI. Your company's growth is a function of your team's growth and your team's growth is a function of the leadership growth and the leadership growth is a function of your personal growth, right? So I think the rate limiter of everything is actually the CEOs. So there's a tremendous amount of ROI. But I want to double click what you said, which is that it's hard to measure. So how do you measure? How do you make the case for yourself to your board that you want this coach? How, how do you make this case first? Yeah, to be honest, for me, and I'm actually a clinical anxiety patient, and I'm now under both psychological and psychiatric care for anxiety. But I saw my productive capacity massively decline. And mm. so my ability to deal with problems was greatly hindered. And I couldn't put in the time and the effort Mm. that it takes to effectively run a startup. And so for me, what I realized is that I was operating at 50% of my normal productive capacity. And I could then feel the difference when somebody came up with a problem on how I reacted. And today, even though I sleep lesser and I probably work more, when a problem comes at me, I'm excited because I'm excited to solve them because most founders inherently are problem solvers. And so, (laughs) and I've spent many years of my life being a problem solver in companies. And so for me, that was sort of the trigger when I felt that there was a very direct impact on my productive capacity and my ability to deal with problems. Obviously, we do that in product form. And if you want to, we can talk about that. And so what we're trying to productionize is giving a clarity score for every team member in terms of what's happening with their wellness, what's happening with their goals, what's happening with their feedback. And the clarity score looks very much like a readiness Mm. score on an aura ring or a a recovery score on a whoop band, and then gives you insights into what actions you can take to enhance your clarity. And and depending where things are broken, and that might be with someone's productive capacity or well-being, or it might be they don't have clarity around their goals, or they don't understand what they're really good at, and there's a hierarchy there on what to investigate, that can then enhance the clarity of the person. And so I think about the word clarity a lot. 
Um, and how in a hybrid world also clarity is harder because often you investigate clarity by spending time with your team members and and that's something we don't have the luxury of in the same way versus in a pre-COVID world and and teams that are clear produce better results they are happier they are more productive they don't burn out and achieve business outcomes and and you can start drawing that link between the health of you, the health of your team, and how right. that translates into achieving results. And, and that's our reason for existence. And that's why we think a lot about how do you measure things effectively? Because if you can't measure them, it's very hard to make them better. And I think that's a great way to tie off the bit about how to make the business case. But I want to double click on what you also said, which is there are many bad coaches. So what's the difference between a good coach and a bad coach? And how do you tell the difference? Yeah, I think one of the ways I put it is that I don't think there's any tennis player in the world who has a badminton coach, right? Mm. I, I strongly believe that you cannot coach someone for a role if you have right. not at least played the same sport. And the sport of a founder CEO is very yeah. different from that of a mid-level executive at a corporation. Right. And, and there are many people living mid-level corporation jobs and becoming coaches and then right. aspiring to coach founder CEOs. They can be very right. good coaches for mid-level managers, but right. they wouldn't be great coaches for founder CEOs. So for me, first is, do you have personal empathy and your personal experience with the sport that's getting played? And sure, if you can maybe be a triathlon coach, if you've been a swimming and cycling and running coach at different times, it doesn't have to be exactly the same, right. but you right. have to have strong empathy. That's one. The second is that people often confuse between what is a coach and what is a mentor or an advisor. And the biggest difference there is as a coach, you have to be deeply listening to be in ask orientation versus in tell orientation. Because Mm. the goal of a coach is realizing Mm. that for every individual, the answers are inside them. And it's your job to then investigate, to get them to the answer. Because when someone comes up with the answer themselves, they are much more likely to implement that versus Mm. advice they're receiving or being told to Right. Especially people like founders who have strong self-conviction about what they're doing. And then three, ideally, they should have received some sort of formal training. So I was lucky that when I did my MBA, I did a one-year program called the Arbuckle Leadership Fellows Program, where as a second-year MBA, you coach both in a group and individually nine first-year MBAs, and then you go through a very structured program on how to learn. And and that's really the basis of um, sort of my experience getting trained. People talk about certifications. I have mixed reviews about certifications and how good a job they do at making someone a coach. But I think the the two biggest is, have you played the sport? And right. do you have the patience and listening ability to largely stay in an ask orientation versus a tell orientation when you're coaching someone? No, that's super interesting. I love the part about ask versus tell. I remember I was backpacking in Peru and Bolivia as a student and I was in, on a bus and there was this Israeli guy and I was like, oh, what are you doing here? And you know, I'm full of optimism. This guy's a middle-aged guy. And he's like, Jeremy, I'm here to find myself. And I was so confused because I was like, I mean, you're here, right? Why are you in Peru and Bolivia finding yourself? 
it's funny because I kind of understood what I was saying, but it took me so many years because I was like, yeah, the joke is that he's with himself the entire time around. So he's just traveling around the world. Mm. And obviously, I think having a new environment and travel lets him obviously explore new frontiers. I'm just sharing this story because not because it's bad. I think travel really helps unlock new ways to see yourself. So it's not about that. But it's more like I still remember I was just thinking to myself like, you're already here, right? And so I think there's an interesting dynamic about why yeah. you said finding yourself. That self-work is hard. I think people often use finding yourself in the wrong way. I, I think in many ways, what you're trying to say is what makes them feel alive. It is unfortunate that there are a lot of people zombing their way through life and not really understanding what really makes them feel alive to better structure their days. And I know that sounds like a humongous privilege because there are people who just have to do what they need to do to pay the bills. Those people, unfortunately, don't have the luxury to to select that. But when people talk about finding your passion or find your calling, I think it's too abstract. I I think it's very much about what does your everyday look like, whereby at least 50% of your hours are spent doing things that energize you and make you feel alive. And that's a much more tangible way of thinking about, let's say, finding yourself. But unfortunately, I think I talk about this a lot. People often solve symptoms because they don't understand the root cause of the disease. And some people call it first principles thinking. But as we know, that's rare in the world. But it's really about energy. And I love high quality conversation. And that's my drug. And if I spend 12, 14 hours a day having high quality conversations, I'm never going to be burnt out. But you make me a process engineer for four hours a day, I guarantee you I'll burn out in two months. And so burnout also has no association with how hard someone is working. That's the other thing that really frustrates me around the modern literature that people associate overwork with burnout. Overwork might make you fatigued. It might make you tired, but it's not going to make you apathetic, which is what burnout is. And so in a world because producing content is cheap and easy and AI will make it even cheaper and easier, there's a lot of content out there and Not a lot of the content really investigates to actually what's going on versus provide lip service to buzzwords that people like and will read. That's a really fascinating dynamic here because it reminds me of like, I was reading this article about the medicalization of grief. Mm. So obviously there is depression. That's a real symptom. But obviously grief very much feels like depression because you're grieving the loss of someone. And then I think there's a very big debate, which is like, how long is grief supposed to last for? Because Mm. if it's too long, we should give it a pill. And you know, I thought it was a fascinating, obviously, article. But I think it was that medicalization of what Mm. is normal versus abnormal. Mm. I think burnout also goes through that definitional debate which is like it kind of goes back to what we said finding yourself right it's definitional the wrong definition can lead to the wrong question which leads to the wrong search for the answer no absolutely and and i think often it is things at a surface level versus right two or three or four levels down in terms of investigation in terms of what is the root cause so if your revenue is not growing as a company You're not going to solve your revenue problem by thinking about revenue. So you have to break down that revenue to its very constituent parts into the right input metrics to understand why that revenue is not growing. But often there are CEOs freaking out about revenue is not growing, revenue needs to grow, but that's not going to solve anything. And that anxiety is not going to solve anything either. You just have to very logically and calmly investigate things to to understand what's really going on. In a world where we live for instant gratification and we live for or the proverbial 
dopamine hit, I think in many ways we have a thinking crisis in the world where we aren't thinking deeply enough about things. And if you don't think deeply enough, we'll be solving the wrong things. Yeah, I was uh, chatting with a Vietnamese founder and education tag just a few weeks ago, and we were just discussing about how the investors kept asking about his financial metrics and he kept talking about his product metrics. And then I kind of said exactly what you said. I was like, all the investors are measuring the cow by how much milk it makes, but doesn't really care whether the milk, the cow is healthy or not. And so I think there's that language, but also the financialization of what a good company is. And yeah. I think that's something that investors play a part in contributing to that thinking as well. Which is why founder-investor fit is huge. One of the things I got very lucky with is I have investors who fully understand why I do the things I do, even if it may not be beneficial in the three to six months timeframe. And understanding what is the longer arc here that we want to follow. And often the distinction I make, unfortunately, in Southeast Asia, there's a lot of people who call themselves venture capitalists, but what they really are is small, middle enterprise private equity, the SME PE. And they're trying to get a two to three X return on every investment. Right. That's what they're trying right. to do. So they're trying to identify an investment that will three X in three years and not lose right. money. That's a different right. asset class. And I'm not right. saying that's a bad asset class, but, right. but it's a different asset class. And venture capital is very much about asymmetric outcomes. But when, you, when ecosystems are young and VC is, is a well-established concept to call yourself, There's a lot of people calling themselves VC when they're not VC. And actually, I I met someone recently who really understands the distinction. He was very honest and said, the reason why we focus on B2B is that we see ourselves as SME PE and and we want our investments to be returning 2 to 5x consistently. And I'm like, that's great. And ecosystems require all kinds of capital. But often as a founder, if you have a longer term vision of what you want to build and what you want to disrupt, if you don't have the right investors, you might end up hating working for your own company. And that is just a massive curse. And so I really feel like I got lucky and feel incredibly aligned with the way I think about the world and my investors do. And we, we may not always agree. We fight in every board meeting and that's good. There should be healthy trade-offs into why we're doing what we're doing, but they tend to sort of see my point of view once I'm able to explain it. Yeah, I think that's uh, super frank. I think I was just discussing that over lunch today, actually. It was just the conversation was really fundamentally. Are we looking, part of this is because Southeast Asia, there's a frontier market. So people are just thinking about what was a, like you call SME, private equity versus a VC outcome. I think that was not very clear five Mm. to 10 years ago when a lot of funds were being raised and a lot of commitments were made to LPs about a strategy. But yeah, I think now I think we're starting to see that, I want to say by but a little bit more clarity about those two different dynamics. And it's not wrong for a VC to have some, like I said, three to five X outcomes. But the question is, are you clear that this is the investment and that this is the best way, like you said, to nurture it across the board meetings, right? Because that strategy misalignment at a board level can really destroy a lot of value for both sides if you're not clear about it. Whereas if you're clear about it to yourself, you're clear about it to the founder, then it's like, whoop. Okay, you know, and and which is why 2020 and 2021 was backwards for the ecosystem in many ways, Mm. right? Because it it brought in a lot more constituents to the ecosystem that just had a shallower understanding of things because it felt like a get rich quick scheme. And the reality is that venture capital is not a get rich quick scheme either for the venture capitalist or for the founder. And I tell people being a founder is the worst financial decision you can ever make. If it's about risk-adjusted return, don't do it. And unless there is a particular mission that you're somewhat obsessive about, it's just not worth it. It's not worth going on the path. 
And that doesn't apply to opening a small business, doesn't apply to opening a restaurant. But if you're going to go on and take on massive industries and be a true disruptor and build something really net new, that's Mm. very hard. And it's going to take a very long time. And it's going to take a lot of sacrifice. And and unfortunately, I don't think a lot of founders fully realize that. And which is why when things get tough, you see people freaking out. You see people doing stupid things that hurt their reputation. You see people getting vindictive to the other side. And it's it's really unfortunate. And it then hurts other founders because it increases the level of suspicion about everybody else in the ecosystem. So every founder who embezzles money is doing a massive disservice to every other founder because now just the trust level goes down and the VC founder relationship in how it should operate is one that's built on very high trust. And if we change that, it's just going to hurt everybody. Yeah, I think there's a fine distinction. Well, it's not a fine distinction at all. I think there's a big difference between founders who fail and founders who are doing criminal activity. I think there's a big difference. But I I think where it feels fine is like that moment. I think both have that high stakes dynamic to it, right? So everyone's Mm. like high stakes, high stakes, high stakes. Mm. And I also understand that sometimes if you're building service, there's no regulation, there's no, what's the word, norms around it. So I can imagine there's there, I mean, you had Uber, I think Uber obviously had that dynamic where it was entering markets that didn't have regulations to support Mm -hmm. car riding. So Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think when there's a fiduciary duty and you're in breach of it, Mm -hmm. I think it's something very different, right? And I think that's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that happens is nobody ever goes and commits large crimes overnight. What happens is you do something small, which feels insignificant. And then you do a second thing to cover up that first thing. And then you do a third thing to cover up that second thing. And then over time, that ends up being pretty egregious. And so one of the things that I've got very comfortable around is that in months where revenue growth is zero, just tell your investors revenue growth is zero. Don't change the answer. And yeah, you will get four emails where they will not be happy, but they will move on. And then it will go back to where it is. But if you're like, oh my God, what are they going to say? Are they going to lose respect for me? Are they going to think I'm useless? That's when that fear and that insecurity makes you start doing things wrong. Because ultimately, for every bad act that happens that's a crime, underlying it is some shame or some fear. Yeah, right. And, and the intention is to self-protect and sort of not give in to that fear or the shame. And so, which is why, like, you know, going back to what we were talking about in the beginning of this conversation, a lot of it goes back to building up your own self-certainty and realizing right. that no matter what the outcome, people will respect you, people will give you another opportunity, people will invest in you again, as long as you don't do bad things. But a lot of people think they may not get a second chance. This is their last shot. They've got to make whatever they can of it. And it is that anxiety and that fear and that shame that leads to bad outcomes. And I've been reading and and listening and learning a lot about what makes narcissistic people what they are. And and if you look at what sits at the bottom of it, it is deep shame. And Mm. the only way to change that is to cure that shame. But, you know, going back to what we're talking about, often we just see the surface activity and we judge it versus being curious about what's really happening beneath the surface. We fail to investigate what's going down deeper. And often you realize that there's deep vulnerability there that needs to be fixed. And so 
bad behavior can be changed if we understand what leads to that bad behavior. Yeah. I think that's the awkward reality, which is that when you choose to be a founder, you're not doing this out of pure virtue to save the world. You're also doing this because you want to. For myself, I was ambitious. I was hungry. I wanted to challenge myself. I saw an opportunity, so I was opportunistic. So I think there's all these different internal factors that said, this is something I think is doable and I, I want to be the person that does it. No, absolutely. And I think that, but I strongly believe I'm a very old school founder. <laughs> <laughs> and so I believe that if you do not believe in the mission, there right. are many other ways to be ambitious and do really well. I think big tech has made a lot of people really wealthy. And it's actually a much safer career path. You can join Meta and work on products that impact billions of lives and, and make impact too. But, but the stakes are very different when you are the person. And right. no matter how big or small the org is, the buck stops with you. And that is incredibly stressful with a two-person org or a 50-person yeah. org if there's no one above you. But right. if the people above you, then it's very different, which is why I think every CEO needs a coach because actually everyone wants a manager and everybody has a manager except a CEO. To wrap things up, is there any piece of advice that you feel is perhaps underappreciated or that you often share with the people that mm. you coach or that come to mm. you for advice? Yeah, I think that often people want to solve business results. So right. they're very, very focused on let's solve business results. And often when I take on a client, I'll really understand that person's well-being and their productive capacity before we talk about anything in the business. And because we are right. all ambitious, because we're all results-driven, myself, included when revenue doesn't grow it's stressful but i have to take a step back and think about what sits at the base of it because when times are tough that's when i need to be at my very best to solve problems and that means i need to take care of my ability to think versus do and often when a founder comes from right. an employment like when i came from uber i was much busy doing at uber and that was a big part of my job but a big part of being a founder is to think mm. and some of the best insights come when you're doing nothing but you're still working, you're thinking about what mm. you're doing. But sometimes right. founders feel like, oh my God, they have to work right. all the time. They have to be in a gazillion meetings and be working on things till four mm. in the morning. But if you don't give yourself time to think, you will probably hurt your business more versus giving yourself mm. the ability to come up with original or unique insight that will take the business forward. Right. Yeah. And on my end, I think one thing I often share is a framework which mm. is called outside mm. in versus inside out. So what I mean by that is sometimes we're talking about something and the person is like, I need to do this because the market is this, 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 and this is the best product launch and so, so forth. And I'll be like, okay, there's a certain cause and effect. The market needs it. Therefore, the company needs mm. to do it. Therefore, I need to change, right? And I would say, this is an outside in, which is the outside environment she is telling us we need to do something about inside. And I'm not saying that we don't discount that, but let's look at the other way around, which is inside out. What does the inner core of you want to do therefore what does the company want to do therefore how does it change the environment right and I think that inversion of cause and effect to some extent at least lets people understand that what for example yeah. you mentioned strengths there could be a strengths perspective versus like you said what does the environment want and it's not to say one is better than the other but at least we know that there are two different ways to approach it and I think that can actually unlock quite healthy conversation about the truth no, and that's that, you know people um, talk about product management yeah. and often product management is listening to the problems yeah. but not listening to the solutions and, yeah. and that solution needs to come mm. from within or else you won't be able to authentically right. defend it to get it to the depth of insight yeah. for it to win in the market. 100%. Yeah. On that note, I'd love to kind of like summarize the three big key takeaways I got from this conversation. First of all, I love what you shared about what 
is the value of coaching? What's the value of good leadership? What does good leadership look like? I thought that was tremendous because I think we had this very honest conversation about how you and I both ended up engaging executive coaches, for example, because we needed help, but both of us felt it was too expensive. It took us years to both pull the trigger. I think there is a structured way to approach the business case that there is value that is actually highly cost-effective, that's high ROI at the end of the day, as long as you're being intentional about the fact that you as a leader are making a lot of decisions on behalf of the organization, right? So I thought it was really important. The second thing I really enjoyed actually was a little bit about, I think to some extent, the ecosystem about private equity versus VC. What does good leadership look like? What does a good board look like? What a healthy debate looks like. I think that's all very constructive. And I thought it was a frankness about there needs to be self-awareness by the founder about what the best growth path is, but also self-awareness by investors about what the company actually is and what the growth trajectory is. And I think that was a really good call to action for more self-awareness by all parties in the Southeast Asia ecosystem. The last thing I really enjoyed was perspective on what good coaching looks like. I thought it's not easy because we all want to say all coaches are great, but we also know that's not possible. But I love your perspective that you have to play the same sport in order to be a, a great coach. I thought about, I think, use the example of tennis versus badminton are to totally different sports. So I think I agree with you. But also I think what was important was also you added other stuff that makes it very hard, which is that you have to be someone who's willing to ask and be patient rather than and tell and that you actually want to do it. And I think that's why there's such a shortage of coaches. So on that note, please go hit up for coaching. I don't know how many more people can accept your book, but can you share with how people can reach out to you or on Loop? LinkedIn is the best. And so I'm Projol. I also have a PJ in my name now in case Projol is too hard to remember. So you can either look for Projol or PJ and find me. And there's only one on Loop as far as I know. And so please reach out on LinkedIn. I'll be very happy to chat with anybody that we can help. Awesome. On that note, thank you so much uh, for sharing your perspective. No, thank you, Jeremy. This was actually a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.